Good morning, Servants Church. Great to be with you guys again. Um, we get to start a new book today. We're going through the epistle to uh, Timothy from Paul, the first epistle to Timothy. So if you want to turn to 1 Timothy in your Bibles or on your device, uh, we're going to start that study today. So what I want to do is just begin by reading the first 11 verses that we're going to look at this morning, and then I'll pray, and then we'll get into it together. So 1 Timothy chapter 1, starting in verse 1, says this, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Now we know that the law is good, if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, for sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, whoever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in, or, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. Let's pray. Father, we ask, God, that as we begin uh, this book, as we start a new letter studying what your word says, that this might be a fresh start for us as individuals and a fresh start for us as a church. Lord, we really desire uh, that we would have our priorities straight. They'd be lined up with what you say is most important. So we pray you'd use this study to that end. And we pray you be glorified in this. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So priorities. What are priorities? We, we talk about priorities a lot. We say to people, you need to get your priorities straight. What does that mean? It basically means that we need to make sure that we're keeping the most important things in the most important place. That we're doing things in a way that uh, reflects the values that we hold dearest. And what we have in 1 Timothy is Paul uh, writing to his disciple, writing to this young man whom he's trained up in the ministry. And he's wanting to see Timothy, uh, he's wanting to help Timothy help the churches in Ephesus to reprioritize, to get their priorities back in line with where they're meant to be. Now, he talks about these priorities uh, that are, are in accordance with what he calls in verse 11, uh, he calls it the gospel of the glory of the blessed God. That the priorities, first and foremost, need to be about the gospel. This gospel of the glory of the blessed God. Well, what does gospel mean? It simply means good news. Now, in a nutshell, for us to understand what we're talking about today, because today we want to talk about the first priority, which is the priority of staying gospel-centered. 
So we need to understand what gospel means. It means good news. And specifically, the gospel is about a person. It's about Jesus Christ. Now, there should be a graphic on your screen uh, that I want you to think about. In this graphic, you can see uh, in the middle, of course, is Jesus. And so when we talk about being gospel-centered, we talk about building our entire lives, building our entire church around and on the person of Jesus Christ. So who he is and what he's done. And, And as you see in this graphic, there's an arrow that points backwards. It points to history. The idea there is that God has a plan with history. The creator God has created the universe, the earth, mankind for a reason. And so when we look back at history, we're looking back at what God's plan is. His story, as some say. And we look at that through the person and work of Jesus Christ. When, it, when you look at the arrow down, it talks about humanity, which means that when we talk about who man is, what are we as, what makes us human, we answer that question by looking at the person and work of Jesus Christ. When we want to know who God is, what is God like? Um, can I actually trust him? We answer that question, those questions, by looking at the person and work of Jesus Christ. And even when it talks about our future, even all the way into eternity, what we can expect in eternity, why we should look forward to eternity, those answers, again, come from the person and work of Jesus Christ. So when we talk about being gospel-centered, we mean just what the graphic shows, that we are building our lives around who Jesus is and what he's done. And so Paul, when he begins this letter to Timothy, he begins with this Point. He wants us to, to make sure that Timothy knows, look, there's the, the churches in Ephesus, they need to stay gospel-centered. So we'll look at three things. The first thing we want to look at is the fact that Paul is writing this letter out of a gospel-centered life. Look at verse 1 again. Paul introduces himself as is normal in a letter. He says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus, or apostle of Christ Jesus, by, the, by command of God our Savior and Christ Jesus our hope. Now, as we look at this uh, uh, epistle, especially in our next study, when we talk about Paul's own story, about how he came to faith in Jesus, it's important for us to not forget that Paul, who is this Jesus follower, was first Paul, who was the Jesus persecutor. That something had happened in his life, something supernatural had happened in his life, to see a change from someone who was a religious zealot who hated Christians to someone who was someone who loved Jesus and wanted to make him known at whatever the cost possible. Something supernaturally took place. In fact, it's interesting here because often Paul will call himself a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. And here he's being specific that he's an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ and even saying that this happens not because he chose to be, just because he chose to be a sent out one for Jesus, but because God commanded it to be so. And that's important for us to recognize because what we recognize about who Paul is, but it's also important for us to recognize to see the authority of this letter. The fact that Paul is writing in the authority of one who's been sent by Jesus means that this letter has the authority of one sent by Jesus. The letter has authority for us. And we believe Paul's doing this. He's introducing himself this way because even though he's writing a personal letter to Timothy, this is a letter that was meant to be read to all the churches. That they were to hear these messages. They're addressed to Timothy. But these are things that Timothy Timothy is setting in order. And he wanted the people who would hear this to know it wasn't Timothy's idea to make this the priorities. It's God's idea to make these things the priorities. So it's interesting too because what we see is not only was this 
God-centered life or this gospel-centered life that Paul had uh, supernaturally received from Jesus, but he faithfully passed this on to Timothy. In fact, in verse 2, he says, to Timothy, my true child in the faith. Now, the the, the word there for true is a a really specific Greek word that means to be legitimate. And this is especially important considering who Timothy is. Timothy had a Jewish mother, but he had a Greek father. So in Jewish thinking, he was half-caste. He was somebody who who was not really legitimately or potentially not legitimately Jewish, especially if he didn't follow the faith of his mother. But Paul here calls him the true child, his true child of the faith. Now this might indicate that Paul had a big part to play in, in Timothy coming to faith, but we do know for sure that this is an indication of the fact that Paul was used by God to help Timothy grow in his faith. Paul had this fatherly relationship, which is really important to think about because when it comes to us growing in gospel-centeredness, that requires real family-type relationships. And Paul had this with Timothy. But it also says something uh, that's really important for us. here's, Here's Timothy, someone who probably grew up with a Greek father and a Jewish mother, wondering what his racial identity actually was. Experiencing, maybe when he went to synagogue with his mother, a bit of racial prejudice or bigotry. And what Paul does is not just to to, uh, come in and say, hey, that was wrong, though of course it would be wrong. Paul's saying, listen, Timothy, I'm writing to you as one whose identity is in the gospel. You are a legitimate son of, of, of our Father God because of the work of our Lord Jesus Christ. And the greeting he gives is, is a little bit different than his typical greeting that he would give uh, to, to his letters. Paul says, Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. So grace and peace, these are typical greetings that, that Paul started his letters with. As, as many of you know, these greetings were one part Greek, one part Hebrew. The Greek uh, uh, charis would be a Greek reading. That's the, that's the Greek word for grace. That would be a way to greet somebody. Uh, uh, shalom would be the way you greet somebody in Hebrew. So grace and peace are, are these greetings. But he adds there mercy. And he's, he's I believe, giving these this. Uh, these, this kind of three-pronged greeting for a reason. He's wanting to encourage Timothy, to remind Timothy that it's the faithful character of God that gives us the peace that we need. It's the fact that God is exceedingly gracious to us and making us His children. It's the fact that God has mercies that endure forever and are new every morning. It's in walking with this God, this faithful God, that helps us experience the peace that God has for us. And so Paul, with this gospel-centered life that he's received supernaturally from Jesus, that he's passed on to Timothy, he wants Timothy now to make sure this is established in Ephesus because it's urgently needed there. Look at verse 3. And so Paul says, As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. Now what's interesting about this is this phrase, any different doctrine, it's one word in the Greek language. It's a word that seems to be exclusive to Paul. It's one of these phrases that Paul coined to make a point. It's the idea that Paul's saying, listen, what we've brought to, what I've brought to Ephesus as an apostle of the Lord Jesus, that's the standard by which all other doctrine needs to be measured. 
And so no other doctrine than what I've taught should be taught. Now this is not Paul exalting himself other, over other apostles. This is in a sense Paul echoing what he had said to the Galatians church. It's not on the screen, but you can look, look it up, Galatians chapter 1, where Paul says, if anybody, including us, that's the apostles, preach any other gospel to you, let him be damned. That's what Paul says. So what Paul's doing here is not just saying, look, I have apostolic authority because I've been commanded by God to be an apostle. But Paul's actually saying it's the truth that God speaks through us that's the authority. That that authority that, that, uh, of the truth that God speaks uh, through the apostle Paul, that's the authority that Timothy needs to bring and measure all other doctrine by. This is why it's really urgently needed. This gospel-centered life is more than just the teaching. It's how we live out the teaching that's important. Now, this is not a surprise. Paul, Paul, when he writes this letter to Timothy, wanting to see this happen in Ephesus, Paul's not shocked by this. In fact, we know from Acts chapter 20 that Paul warned the Ephesian elders that this kind of stuff would happen. Listen to this. Paul writes to the Ephesian elders, he says to them, I know that false teachers like vicious wolves will come in among you after I leave, not sparing the flock. Even some men from your own group will rise up and distort the truth in order to draw a following. So Paul knew this was the case. He would go to an area, he would plant a church, he'd leave that church to good leadership, but he would warn that leadership, listen, you need to be on guard because, well... There are people that want to draw disciples after themselves. We'll talk more about this as we move on in 1 Timothy. But suffice it to say, what Paul's writing here is not just theoretical knowledge, not just here have your, be able to, 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 to cross the right uh, theological T's and dot the right theological I's. This is Paul sharing from a gospel-centered life the importance of the church being gospel-centered. So now the next section we see is where Paul is beginning to expose some of the symptoms that show that Ephesus wasn't being gospel-centered. Look at verse 4. It says, no, uh, Paul says, uh, they should not teach any other doctrine, verse 3, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than stewardship from God, that is by faith. Myths and endless genealogies. Now, we have some ideas what these things might have been, but Paul doesn't say specifically what there are. But I think for our, for our purposes today, it's important just to see kind of myths might be compared to modern day conspiracy theories. Ideas about this thing or that thing. It's, it's basically taking uh, something that might be true and exalting it to a level uh, that's uh, equal to or above that which is for sure true. This is what's happening. In other words, what they're doing here, what, what a symptom is, uh, is of when a person or a people group stop being gospel-centered is when they choose human speculation over biblical revelation. It's when they go, oh, I know God said this to me, boom, and they exalt that above what God's Word says. That's a very dangerous place to be. Because what's happening is, then we're not centered on the gospel, then our message is, at best, mixed. Kind of the idea here of genealogies, there was, uh, it was very popular, especially among Jewish circles, to talk about their genealogies and, and see, those, see their kind of family line as being some of their spiritual pedigree. So it might be today the way we kind of, I don't know, maybe the way people tend to be church bragging. You guys know what I'm talking about? Servant church people, you're always bragging about servants church, you need to stop that. Church bragging where we talk about, oh, I, I go to such and such church, as if somehow that we are now innocent by association or we are better by association. That's ridiculous. 
the fact that our church is, is someone's church is bigger or someone's church is, uh, has a certain reputation, those things should not be where we focus at all. And so Paul, in a sense, is, is talking about this, talking about, look, stop trying to focus on your spiritual pedigree, that, that where you think you, you are. It's, it's kind of what he talked about in 1 Corinthians when he says, oh, some say I'm of Apollos, I'm of Paul. That's not how we should be. We should be, look, we want to follow Jesus. Interesting, too, the way that English Standard Version says this, the way it talks about how um, that they're focusing on this instead of focusing on the stewardship from God. The stewardship from God. It's an interesting phrase. A stewardship is basically this. It's, it's something that doesn't belong to you that someone else is entrusted to you to be responsible for. So a steward of a house in this day would have been someone who, a rich person, they would often travel for business. And so they would have a kind of a head servant, a head steward of their household, who was responsible to make sure that their household ran well, but also that all their business dealings were doing well. So these people tended to be uh, fairly, they tended to be slaves, but also fairly well-to-do slaves. They were materially comfortable, but they didn't own anything. They only had a responsibility responsibility for their owner's stuff, for their master's stuff, so to speak. And so when Paul talks about the, the gospel in the sense of stewardship, when he says, listen, don't focus on myths and genealogies, but on the stewardship, he's talking about the fact that God has ordered his plan and how he's saving people. And that's where our focus should be. And sometimes what can happen to us as a local church is we can focus on, okay, what's our methods to getting this gospel out? And we're so focused on our methods or on our means or on our presentation that we forget about, wait a second, what's the stewardship God's given us? Are we being good stewards of the gospel? Because when we get our focus off that, it's a good symptom there uh, that uh, we're not being gospel-centered. And we could be choosing our human speculations over biblical revelation. Now, Another symptom, verses 6 and 7, is when people debate what they don't yet understand. Look at verses 6 and 7. Paul says, these certain persons, by swerving from these, and we'll see in verse 5, talking about expressions of love, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things which they make confident assertions. A lovely brother a few weeks back gave me a gentle rebuke for not being more dogmatic about what I believed about the end times. They watched the podcast and said, bro, don't be afraid. Say what you think. And I said to him, I did say what I think. I think it's hard to know. It would be foolish of me to make a confident assertion of something that is not that clear. I think it's even much more foolish of people who haven't actually studied, who haven't been called to be teachers of God's word to make firm speculations. In fact, this is kind of what I think Paul's getting to. Why would we want to obey things, or what, I'm sorry, why would we want to debate things that we really don't know that much about? In fact, one of the dangers with this can come from, or, or can turn into where we are actually more concerned about debating God's truth than obeying God's truth. It's not a good place to be. It's when we're getting uh, less than gospel-centered. Lastly, another symptom of not being gospel-centered that Paul brings up in verse 8. Look at this. Paul begins to talk about the law. He says, now we know that the law is good, verse 8, if one uses it lawfully. 
Now, the law here that he's talking about here, of course, is the entire Old Testament, but probably specifically uh, the sort of uh, the Ten Commandments, we might say. That was the basic foundation of the Old Testament covenant was those Ten Commandments. Now, it's interesting because what he's talking about here is really what I'm calling uh, this issue of when people begin to devalue God's law. And there's two main ways that we do this. And we see these kind of hinted in the text here. The first way we can devalue God's law, and of course that's a symptom of us not being gospel-centered, is what we'll call liberalism. And liberalism is when we are ignoring the authority of God's law. It's when we say, you know, well, that's, that's what Moses said, but, you know, that doesn't really apply to us. We don't really need to see that as God's word to us anymore or, or what have you. But the problem with that is that it actually undermines what Jesus said. And if we call ourselves Jesus followers, we need to have the same mindset towards the law that he had. Listen to this. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 to 19, he says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, Jesus says, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Do you see what Jesus is doing there? Jesus isn't lowering the standard. He's raising the standard. He isn't chucking aside God's standard as the Old Testament. He's fulfilling it. This is why if you continue to read Matthew chapter 5 and Matthew chapter 6 and Matthew chapter 7, the Sermon on the Mount, you'll see that D Jesus takes these laws and takes them from being applied in just a, a horizontal way and says, look, these have a spiritual implication and our hearts should turn to worship and as we walk in these things. So liberalism is a devaluing of the law. It doesn't look at the law the way God looks at the law. But the other, at the other extreme is what we might call legalism. And legalism is when we're trusting our obedience to God's law. We have a basic understanding, and we do what God's law says. Now, here's what's interesting. Uh, the Pharisees were known uh, as legalists. The religious leaders of, of, of uh, Jesus' day were known as, uh, or what we would call today as legalists. We would call them legalists because they were, they were so committed to make sure that they fulfilled every every aspect, every nuance of the law. So if the law commanded that we tithe the first 10% of our income, every time they would, they would like gather spices from their spice garden, they would take 10% and give that to the temple. They were really strict about that. And so they were all about fulfilling the law because they were trusting that their obedience to the law would make them right. Now here's what's interesting. We just read Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 to 19. Listen to what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 20. He says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. In other words, Jesus knew that the, the audience that heard the Sermon on the Mount would have seen that the people that are, are most, who most value the law are the Pharisees. But Jesus says, no, 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 you need to value the law much more than them. Because here's what the Pharisees did. What they did was legalism. They were trusting that if they could figure out a way to look like they fulfilled the law, then they'd be right with God. This is the mistake that the Pharisees made. This is the, the, the mistake that the, the majority of the nation of Israel made. 
fact, Paul talks about this, listen, in Romans chapter 10. For Jews don't understand God's way of making people right with himself. Refusing to accept God's way, they cling to their own way of getting right with God by trying to keep the law. Christ has already accomplished the purpose for which the law was given. As a result, all who believe in him are made right with God. So can you see how when we we try to dismiss God's law, liberalism, that we're devaluing it, or we're trying to, to, to trust in our own obedience to God's law, legalism, we're devaluing it. But Jesus fulfills the law. He holds up the, the high value of God's law by fulfilling it. And by fulfilling it, listen, where we failed, He succeeded. And God, when we, God gives us His righteousness when we put our faith in Him. So, so, so how we view the law really affects us how we're going to be gospel-centered or not. In fact, quickly before we move on to the last point, I want to kind of look at some of the things that he mentions here. Because Paul says in verse 9 that the law was not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient. You see, everyone but Jesus has been lawless or disobedient. Everyone but Jesus, every human but Jesus, is, is, has been, can be considered ungodly in sinners, can be considered unholy and profane. That's every one of us, whether we grew up religious or we didn't. Whether we consider ourselves religious or not. All of us fit this category. And if we're thinking, no, I don't think I'm that bad, he makes sure that he lists some specific things. Now, this is not an exhaustive list. And what's interesting to me about this list is there's some issues on here that we would say, yes, amen. In our culture, others would be going, no, that can't be right. But if you go into another cultures, they'd say yes and amen to some, and they say to others, no, those aren't right. Well, let me give you an example. He lists those who would be considered ungodly and sinners as those for, for those who would strike fathers and mothers. The idea there being that, you know, obviously in that day they didn't have uh, retirement homes for people. So grandma and grandpa lived with you and you had to take care of them. And the truth is, if you had to take care of them, that could be a very stressful thing. And the idea was they would dishonor their parents by beginning to be abusive to them. It happens today, folks. And most of us would say it's hideous. But he also says this, for murderers, well, we all agree murder is wrong, right? What about this? For sexually immoral men who practice homosexuality, now, some have tried to take that phrase, men who practice uh, homosexuality, and say this is only talking about temple prostitutes. But the fact that Paul uses the term sexual morality means any sex that's not one man, one woman in marriage for life. That's the clear biblical teaching. Now, here's the point, though. We would look at this and you go, oh, come on, John, don't go down that road. In our open culture, we can't say that's what sinful people do or what lawless people do, but it is. What about this? Uh, what about this? Uh, enslavers. Do we hate sex traffickers? Yes, we do. Would we say that they're unholy and profane? Yes, we would. What about liars? Well, I guess it depends on what kind of lie we, take, we, we tell. What about perjurers? Those who, who, who lie under oath. I can think of a few politicians who have done that recently. What about uh, the, uh, anything else that is contrary to sound doctrine? See, the point that Paul's making is... If you don't think you're guilty, just go down the list. Eventually you'll see you're just as guilty as everybody else. That is the right use of the law. The law is meant to show us how much we need Jesus. See, the gospel, the good news, is only good news if you understand this bad news. 
If I came to you and I said, hey, great news, I've been doing some research and I've been doing some testing and I've found a cure for cancer. Any kind of cancer is cured by this. You might go, wow, that's great. Uh, don't really believe you because you're a pastor and not a researcher, so I'm not sure if that's true. And you would maybe doubt this, all right? But if you were someone who was dying of cancer, God forbid, you had an incurable cancer that you couldn't find the cure for, and then I could show you on paper, here's the research I've done, here's where it's been peer-reviewed, here's where the testings begin to happen, you would want to know me well and you'd want to find that cure because first the bad news forced you to say, this now cure is good news. See, what Paul's trying to say to Timothy is, listen, we can't get into these silly speculations about doctrine, about things that we don't even understand. And we can't kind of puff our chest in some sort of spiritual pedigree. We need to say, What's, why has God given us His law? Why has He given us His word? So that we can know the good news about Jesus. That's what we need. Now, let's look at the last point. We see that, that Paul goes from exposing symptoms of not being gospel-centered to celebrating the fruit of being gospel-centered. Look at verse 11. Now, when he says uh, in verse 10, whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, he then equates sound doctrine with this, verse 11, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God. Now, I love the fact that Paul uses this phrase. Another other of his letters, Paul will just say something simply like, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, because the gospel, as we've said already, is centered on, it's built around who Jesus is and what he's done. But here, he uses a phrase that's, in a sense, much more worshipful. He's, it's, it's like Paul's exp expressing something that's just flowing from his heart. You, 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 this is not Paul being flowery with his language. This is Paul being worshipful. It's like what's overflowing in his heart is like, oh, the good news about how glorious and blessed and amazing our God is. In other words, listen, he's in celebrating the fruit of being gospel-centered, he's, he's, he's expressing that knowing the gospel means we know how good God is. He is so amazing. He's so glorious. Now, when we talk about glory, remember the word glory, uh, is, it's basically, glory means the unique value of something. And we've talked about this lots of times before, haven't we? That like, like it, it, the scripture talks about the, the, the glory of, an old, uh, of a young man is his strength and of an old man is his gray hair. And the idea there is you're young, you're strong, you're old, you're wise. So they have a unique value. There's a unique value to being young. There's a unique value to being older. That's the point. When we talk about the glory of God, we say, what makes God uniquely viable? What makes him different? And the answer that God gives is his son, Jesus. He shows his, he's revealing his glory, his unique value through his son, Jesus. L listen to this. This is, this is uh, John chapter 1, verses 17 and 18 from the New Living Translation. It says, for the law was given through Moses... But God's unfailing love and faithfulness came through Christ Jesus. Now, this is not saying that God wasn't faithful or wasn't he, His love failed in the Old Testament. This is saying that the, the, the greatest revelation that we have of who, who He is in His glory is Jesus. He says, no one has ever seen God, but the unique one, Jesus, who is Himself God, is near the Father's heart. He has revealed God to us. See, the reason we want to stay gospel-centered is, is it's when we, we keep our focus on who Jesus is and what He's done for us that we think, oh God, you're so 
good. Sometimes we worship God out of guilt. Oh, Lord, I fall so short. I'm not very good. I mess up here. I mess up there. And it's true. That's where we are. But what really provokes the worship that pleases God is when we worship God from the goodness of the gospel, the good news of who he is and what he's done. And we say, Lord, you're so good. You've done everything that we need to to, to make us right with you, to have a hope for eternity. You've done this. God, you're good. See, staying gospel-centered is how we know how good God is. But also, look at verse 5. The fruit of being gospel-centered is we, we tend to show how good God is. Paul says plainly in verse 5, The aim of our charge is love. Now, love is probably the most talked about and the least acted upon subject in, in all humanity. Especially in the West. We love to talk about love. We love to use the word love. Because we, we, we see love as pinnacle. We see love as the best. And you know what? We're right to think that. But do we realize that, we've, that that whole idea of love being above all is a gospel truth? And if we don't understand the gospel, we don't understand love? Now Paul here is saying, listen... He's saying to Timothy, Timothy, I want you to help the churches in Ephesus get their priorities straight because I want them to be able to show how good good God is. I want them to be able to love. Now, I love what he says here. He gives kind of three ways the love of God is, is expressed. He says, the aim of our charge is love that issues from, first one, a pure heart. You see, when we understand God's love for the gospel, the fact that God so loved us, He sent His only begotten Son, that we should not perish but have everlasting life. When God, we, God first reveals that love to us, we first receive that love, you know what happens? Our hearts are purified. Our affections are changed. Don't get hung up by the word pure. I think this is what, what kind of trips us up. I know when I was first looking at this afresh for this preparation, I was thinking, pure heart, Lord, I don't know if I have a pure heart. But don't think of pure as an already perfect. Think of pure as something that's being washed. Think of this idea of flowing water, right? When we, I don't know about you, but when I turn on the, the kitchen faucet to get a drink of water, I turn it on and I let it run for a few seconds. I want to make sure when I finally put my cup underneath there that the water I'm drinking is pure. It hasn't just been sitting in pipes for a while. And, and I do that, I expect that the water I'm drinking is pure. Not because it's perfect water, but because the, 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 the water that's flowing is from a good source. And, and here's the idea. The hearts that God gives us, this new transformed heart, it's a heart that's being cleansed by the love of God. The, the affections of it, the direction of that heart is being changed by the love of God. And this is what he means when he says love that flows from a pure heart. And so let me just ask you, Has your heart been changed by the gospel? And I I mean that. Your affections. What is it that you want more than anything? Oh, I I know you're like me and you want stuff you shouldn't want. I, I get that. But has your heart been changed? Do you want to know God's love more than you want those other things that you shouldn't want? Has your, have your affections been changed? Because the first thing that God changes through His gospel is our affections. 
He gives us a pure heart. Jesus said, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. He says, here's a second expression of God's love and the whole reason we need to be gospel-centered. Look at, again, verse 5. He says, the aim of our charge is love that issues from a good conscience. So a good conscience is a sense that that we know where where we're supposed to be, that we know we're in the place we're meant to be. You guys all know what it means to have uh, when your conscience convicts you. You know what it's like when you have a bad conscience. You've been in that place where you've done something wrong and you go, oh man, I should have done that. Oh, I should have done that. Or when you should have done something and you, you neglect that. You get that kind of tinge of you should do something you don't do. You know what that's like. Whether you're a Christian or not, you know what that's like. We all have a conscience, a knowledge of right and wrong. What, what this is talking about is when it talks about loving from a, uh, what's the, the, the phrase he uses for conscience? I just lost it. Um, loving from a good conscience is this idea that our conscience, our knowledge of what's right and wrong, again, has been cleansed by the blood of Jesus. We know that we have forgiveness so that when we get it wrong, we can say, sorry, God messed it up. I want to make that right. And we can receive forgiveness and continue to love. Isn't this what keeps us from loving? It is when we don't focus on the good news of who Jesus is and what he's done. We don't stay gospel-centered to what happens. We don't love the way we're supposed to. We just go, oh, I'm so bad. And we spiral out as we focus on ourselves instead of saying, wait a second, the blood of Christ cleanses my conscience. I need to go back to God and say, God, Christ died to give me a clear conscience. I want to love you and love others from a good conscience that's washed clean by the blood of Jesus. That's what he's talking about here. And the third bit, listen, about showing how good God is, about loving the way God wants us to love, is that it's love that it, it, it issues from a sincere faith. Again, I think what can happen is we can get caught up in this idea of sincerity. We can see this as as um, again, an issue of perfection. Oh, I believe perfectly. I never doubt. Well, listen, if you have real faith, you're also going to have real doubts. Because if you have real faith, you're not working up, I believe, I believe, I believe. You are looking accurately, as best you can, you're perceiving what God has said about Himself and about what He's done for you in Jesus. And to do that means you're going to have doubts because there's going to be things you don't fully understand. So it's not about a doubtless faith. It's about a faith that is growing. It's about knowing that God is trustworthy. You ever wonder how we can love a God who doesn't need us? How does that work? You know, we, we often try to love people by doing things for them that they can't do for themselves or by doing things that make, you know, try to make them happy. Well, this is what makes God happy. Trust Him. Trust Him. Love that comes from a sincere faith that says, God, I want to really trust you. I want to sincerely trust you. That's what he wants to produce. That's what the gospel produces in us. When we're gospel-centered, we learn to love this way. Paul's celebrating this. Again, listen to the words of Jesus. In John chapter 15, Jesus says, this is my commandment. Love each other in the same way I have loved you. There is no greater love than to lay down one's life for one's friends. You see, see here's, here's how this works. And this is where we need to keep the priority in servant church to be the gospel. We need to make sure that we're prioritizing this gospel-centeredness. When we keep the gospel front and center, when we are building our life around not what we do, but what God's done for us, it's then and only then that we're able then to say, man, because God loves me, I'm going to love this person next to me. 
Because God loves me, I'm going to call that person in the directory that I haven't talked to in weeks. Because God so loves me, I'm going to show up to another tedious Zoom meeting. Because God loves me, I want to love his people this way. That only happens as we remain gospel-centered. So Paul's commands through Timothy to the churches in Ephesus are God's commands by the Holy Spirit to us today. The priorities of a local church begin with being gospel-centered. Is your life centered on the gospel? Are you building a life? You're building your life on the good news of what God has done for you through Jesus. Is our church built on that? As the old song goes, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Let's do this, church. Let's continue to keep Jesus at the center of our lives. And if you're watching this today and you're not yet a believer in Jesus, we want to walk you through this. We want to introduce you more to who this Jesus is. So please get in contact with us, whether it's through our webpage and email, or even you're welcome to come to the, the after-service service. We'd love to hear your story. We'd love to, to listen. We'd love to pray for you. But to all who are watching, let's build our lives on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen? Father, thank you so much that you love us. And thank you so much that you've demonstrated that love by sending Jesus to die for us while we were still sinners. Lord, we thank you for the law that shows us that, Lord, you have a good standard for the humanity that you've created for your covenant people, but we fall short of that standard, and this is why we need Jesus who fulfills the standard for us. Lord, we pray you teach us how to walk in that standard, which is broken down to loving you and loving others. Do this, Lord. Teach us and empower us to do this. By your Holy Spirit, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.